0: Throughout the centuries around the world, there is an integral tie between seeing the Bible as some kind of unique collection of sacred literature and Christian faith.
1: This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. We are back to explore the intersection between faith and culture in Canada. And joining me on the program today is a Bible scholar who specializes in the New Testament. He's done work at Regent and Providence, named just a couple schools Craig Blomberg, how are you today?
0: Very good. Thank you.
1: So, Craig, aside from Peyton Manning, what is your favorite thing about Denver?
0: Well, my goodness, I've been here 35 years. So if you're going to start with football quarterback, then I suppose I have to go back to John Elway.
1: His throws were so hard that they'd make an X on the on the receiver's chest.
0: That was the legend. <laughs>
1: yeah, he's a great player. And what about the mountains? Do you, uh, Do you find God in nature?
0: I find that God created nature, and I love to get out, and my wife and I are, we like to call it hiking, but it's just glorified walking up and down hills, and <laughs> it is a beautiful part of the world.
1: Sure is. Somewhere I've never been, but I'd love to love to get there, but I appreciate you, your willingness to speak into the Canadian context a little bit for the sake of, of this conversation, and a uh, conviction that I have is really trying to understand uh, culture in Canada at large, and You know, in your experience and and continual pushing forward with uh, with your work as an academic, why do you think that it's so important for there to be Christian academia and scholarship in your northern neighbor in Canada?
0: For the same reason that it's important any place in the world, Uh, even from a purely secular point of view, Christianity still holds a slim margin over Islam in terms of the greatest number of professing adherents. It is arguably the most influential religion in world history. And uh, an educated person ought to know a fair amount about something like that.
1: It's a great response. And for you personally, I mean, I understand that you were converted as a teenager. Why have you devoted your life to to study?
0: It's true. Um, I was brought up in what I later learned to call a, a very liberal Protestant denomination and congregation. The idea of being able to have a personal relationship with Jesus that could transform my life was not the way I remember ever hearing it phrased in my church. But through a Youth for Christ Club in my high school, I, for the first time, saw kids my own age, even as young as 15, uh, for whom this made a very significant difference in their lives in good ways. And as I grew, I tried in all different kinds of ways with my friends and new acquaintances to talk about what Jesus had come to mean in my life. And one response, uh, not necessarily the, the most common, but common enough, was, well, how do we know Jesus actually said and did the things the Bible says he did? And that Happened often enough that I set out on a quest that's wound up being lifelong to come up with good answers.
1: Well, I appreciate your contributions to the uh, to the Christian world at large and to the culture world at large. Now, you mentioned that uh, the church that you grew up at you didn't necessarily, uh, from what you can remember, uh, remember preaching that was so focused on Jesus. And I've heard it said that Jesus. I think this is this is a fair assessment. I mean, you, you, I'm sure you could. You could pick apart any statement that I say as a professor, but uh, Jesus is the word behind the word. And you study the word. You've you've poured your life into this. Uh, But you know better than I do that there's a growing number of Christians that don't take the Bible as the word of God. What dangers do you see in this?
0: Most believers will take something out of scripture as the word of God, even if they don't necessarily realize they're taking it out of scripture. If they're saying that love is the heart of a good life, and they're agreeing with both Jesus and Paul, who said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself are the two most important things in life. But if they're not accepting the entire Bible as an authority, then the question you have to ask is, how do you pick and choose which parts you accept? if you say, well, I don't necessarily accept any of it, I just take it as a good human book, then what do you base your life on? Why, why even call yourself some kind of a Christian? What does that word mean for you? And, and I know what some of the answers to that are, but I don't think they are in keeping with the historic meaning of the term. Throughout the centuries around the world, there is an integral tie between seeing the Bible as some kind of unique collection of sacred literature and Christian faith. So let's talk about it.
1: Can you pick that apart a little bit? Because when the early believers were first considered Christians at Antioch, what would be the ties to the word of Christ in that earliest time of being considered a Christian, as you say?
0: Well, the scriptures, of course, in the earliest years were the Hebrew Bible, uh, what today we call the Old Testament. And Jesus himself had modeled and the first Christian preachers consistently modeled the practice of taking texts from the Old Testament and pointing out how they believed that they pointed forward to the things that Jesus of Nazareth said and did, and therefore that This man was the fulfillment of the prophecies and the hopes of Israel, but also going right back to Abraham in Genesis 12, blessed to be a blessing to the nations. And it was now the time of the ingathering of the nations, hence the beginning of an active worldwide mission. Craig, do you think that,
1: you mentioned off the top that you said that Christianity has arguably been the most influential religion in the world. And do you think this proponent to seeking truth, as we see players in history like Wilberforce and and Luther King Jr.? Do you think that really does stem from the Word of God?
0: Well, those two do. Martin Luther King Jr. was a, a Baptist pastor, and although some of his views were viewed in his day as radical, largely because the people viewing him that way were racist, he certainly derived his convictions from Scripture, and it's been written about just at least as often with Wilberforce and his commitment, lifelong commitment as an adult to abolish slavery, very much came out of Christianity.
1: So you said there's nothing new. There's nothing new that that, that hasn't been brought up before. And yet, it sounds like those that are, are raising concern for the validity of, of the Scriptures, they would argue that 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 that's not the case, that there is more modern science than there was 50 years ago, that there are stronger proponents of different worldviews that we didn't have as resources. How do you combat that, that there are such other ways of thinking that contradict the Word of God?
0: Well, yeah, I would agree if if you're talking about a quantitative argument, but I would disagree in terms of a qualitative argument. If you look at the religious world of the first century Roman Empire, you can find analogs to virtually every religion and vice versa. I like to take students on a survey of first century religious options and say now, what are the closest contemporary parallels you can think of? And there always are ones. Are there people who are sometimes in some generations more vociferous than others? Sure. That, that goes in cycles. Have we learned a lot more about what is scientific? Absolutely. We've also learned a lot more about ancient Near Eastern literature and literary genres. The fact that passages like Genesis 1 to 11 do not resemble ancient history any more than they resemble modern. And so modern education helps us in both ways. It allows us access to the full breadth of understanding, of interpretation. There are places where having access to just about every known document from the ancient world that has ever been preserved, translated, and digitized, which is an extraordinary amount, enables us to say, oh, look, this view that some people today say is the only way Christians ever took, something really isn't.
1: Now, I know this is a little bit out of your expertise because you specialize in the New Testament, but you did allude to Genesis 1 to 11 and some new findings that have been discovered uh, from your fellow scholars. What would you point to to support uh, the argument of the validity of of what are some pretty contentious chapters of the Bible at the very beginning?
0: Well, without necessarily uh, commending it as the solution, because there is Easily a half a dozen ways to take uh, Genesis 1 to 3 alone. And because that's not my area of specialization, I tend to allow for several of those possibilities. But a scholar by the name of John Walton, who spent much of his career at Wheaton College in the Chicagoland area, has written extensively on the imagery of both the days of creation in Genesis 1 as resembling an ancient monarch establishing a dwelling place for himself aka a holy temple in Israelite language and then you shift to the garden imagery which is also that which was regularly associated with kings and high priests and suddenly you're in a world that's intending to talk about what is the nature of the one God that Jews and Christians believe makes the world monotheistic rather than polytheistic and what is the nature of that one god
1: Let's uh transition to uh, uh more of your expertise in the New Testament because you have written books on uh one of the genres that Jesus loved to speak in which is parables why is it important for us in understanding the the, the reality that Jesus is pointing to to use this tool in its rightful way
0: A parable is a magnificent form of communication and Jesus well, certainly the master of it. There, There isn't even anything that we are aware of that anybody attempted in the Greco-Roman world uh, that's at all liked it. The next closest thing is Aesop's fables with talking animals, which really isn't that close. The rabbis had hundreds of parables from uh, a few centuries later, but Read them for yourselves. They just don't quite have the same punch or force or impact. What Jesus did was draw people into a very short story. Have you ever been a prodigal? Have you ever been an older brother? I've been an older brother. You can't help but be drawn into the story. But as soon as you're drawn into the story, then Jesus makes it clear he's talking about God as the father and the way humans respond. In his world, they were Pharisees and scribes on the older brother's side and tax collectors and sinners on the younger brother's side. I was in Dublin several years ago, uh, not that long ago, I think it was 2017, at the uh, Irish Evangelical Alliance Conference and Ireland is less Christian than Canada although they're actually growing, they're moving in good directions in evangelical circles. And I heard a man who's got some of the most creative and effective outreach in urban Dublin say, if I can admit to the church's critics that I've been the older brother in detail, I might be able and sometimes am able to get them to say, yep, you're right. And we are the prodigal sons.
1: That's really cool. And I think that I'd be curious to hear hear your thoughts on like how given the pulse that is our progressive culture as a Bible scholar, while you want to be true to the scriptures, but is there anything that you see that we should really double down on in, in, in studying in the word so that we can be able to come against and admit to some of our mistakes like being the older son to the rest of our country maybe?
0: Oh, absolutely. And I'm grateful that uh, you haven't entirely imitated the worst of American culture. I'm grateful that you've had a little more sanity during the pandemic than we've had. And there could be other things that were listed. I think you have taken the lead better than we have in environmental and ecological circles. I think that perhaps you have a better balance of issues of justice and and mercy for the hurting and the marginalized and the disenfranchised people at home and around the world. And of course, these are huge sweeping generalizations that, that admit to many exceptions. And we should applaud a secular culture where those are key issues. And we should point out that, in fact, they're key biblical issues and that Christians have often not done a good job with them. Starting in any context with as much common ground as you can possibly muster up with someone who has different values is a key. Jesus and Paul both modeled it in the New Testament to gaining a hearing, and at the very least, having a courteous and civil conversation. Uh, I'm so old, I can actually remember a lot of those as I was growing up (laughs) as a kid. And it seems like with each decade that I've lived, they're more and more rare, but they're still possible.
1: What would you suggest Christians to study in order to be best prepared for this kind of dialogue and this sort of applauding without being in such fear
0: I've heard it said that until I can, with some empathy, understand not only what another person is saying, but why a rational person might seriously believe that, I'm really not fully qualified to engage them in uh, a proper conversation, and that doesn't mean that we have to become experts on everything. The young beginning teacher learns on a daily basis to say, let me get back to you on that. (laughs) I think sometimes Christians go to one training session after another, one seminar, one conference, one podcast after another thinking, if I just get enough of these, I'll be ready to engage in conversation with people I haven't yet met. That's totally backwards. Go out and meet them. Go out and share your views and and be friendly and listen and don't react when there's something you're horrified at, at least not in a too horrified way. And let that be the stimulus for the things that then you start to research so that the next time you get together, you can say something more.
1: Oh, that's great, counsel. Uh, one of the perhaps opportunities to to share and to relate to culture in Canada I think would have to be through authenticity you know there's this growing desire to to share with vulnerability what what you're going through in your life and I I would imagine that given your pulse on the scriptures that one of the arguments that that you'd be very well versed in is that the one that there are so many places in the bible where many people deny Jesus like Peter or there's examples of Jonah who has these confrontations with God, and yet all of that is disclosed to us in the scriptures. And so isn't that a strong argument, not just to point to the validity of of the Bible, but also one that connects with this cultural moment too?
0: Absolutely. Um, it's been said that that no religion has its sacred scripture disclose as many of its sins, errors, mistakes, misfires, whatever you want to call them, as the uh, Hebrew Scriptures does. More often than not, the prophets and leadership who are godly within Israel are having to uh, lambast the majority of the people for, in most of their life, disobeying God. And if I were inventing a religion to commend it to others, that would not be a very good way of doing it and the new testament is hardly squeaky clean in in comparison these are real people uh we shouldn't put them up on a pedestal nor should we demonize them they are like you and me
1: just a final sticking point for people is often paul's authorship uh, given that it came after jesus and after the the old testament was was conveyed uh, yet you in your in your writings and your research have pointed to the uh, the certainty of of books that we know with confidence, uh, we, we can know with, with great confidence, were were more or less written by him f- for sure. And there are others that we don't have that same confidence. And so that can sort of, it seems to weaken uh, people's arguments. So these books that we don't know if they're written by Paul, we presume they probably are. What should a Christian do with them when conversing with someone who is trying to seek the truth?
0: Well, it's certainly not the the first hill to lead the troops out to and die on. There has been a lot of research on what scholars call pseudonymity, writing under the name of someone else that turns out to not be the true name of an author, hence a false name, a pseudonym. And there is evidence uh, that is very mixed. There are passages in Jewish and Greek and Roman circles that suggest it would be not too much different than if uh, I pick up the autobiography of a famous sports star or Hollywood celebrity and discover that it was written by a ghost author, or that a book was finished posthumously and edited by the good friend or disciple of uh, a person who had just died. And then on the other hand, there is evidence to suggest that People would have rejected that out of hand. And so anybody who says the last word has been written hasn't been reading the recent words. (laughs) It's still a very, a very debated topic. So a book can be authoritative, whether or not we know for sure who wrote it. Other things that if the American Constitution were found out not to have been signed by John Hancock, who at least wrote the biggest name in his signature, though he probably was the most influential person behind it, it wouldn't change one thing in terms of the authority that it has come to have and been used in American legal circles. So that's an issue that's important. It's one to talk about. It's not a hill to die on.
1: Now, just in like looking at this from the uh, a higher vantage point, the whole Bible in its contents is... Constantly pointing to us of how God works through broken people to accomplish his, his purposes. And the authority of the Bible, in a sense, is maybe an analogy of that. Him working through these authors that aren't necessarily perfect like he is.
0: Right. There's this mythology in some circles that uh, is kind of like what Protestants have done, uh, hopefully just joking but maybe not always when the Pope goes through a cafeteria and he says, what's for lunch today? And the Protestant says, well, shouldn't he already know? Um, Well, no. Um, The infallibility of the Pope, according to Catholic doctrine, is limited to those very rare moments when he is speaking ex cathedra from his chair, making an official statement on behalf of the entire church. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul, Peter, whoever else you want to add to the list, Christians say we're inspired, we're superintended by the Spirit of God to write exactly what God wanted, not by a dictation, but through all the processes of normal human writing, when they wrote these special books. And every other thing they did in life had nothing necessarily special about it.
1: It's a great way to put it, and I think a great way to end this this conversation. Thank you so much, Craig Blomberg, for your contributions to helping us see Jesus in in Canada.
0: Yeah, it's very enjoyable.
1: And if you want to find out anything more about Craig Blomberg or the books that he's written, you can head to the show notes at davidmanmedia.com. Next time on Culture at the Crossroads. The coronavirus has disrupted family, school, and of course work, which is extended to the clothing business of Madison D'Souza. But the pandemic has offered her and her team a unique opportunity to pivot to something else completely different.
0: We were in this really unique position where we recognized that we had time on our hands and that we had the ability to help other businesses during this season. So we started brainstorming about what was the best way to do that. And we figured that sanitizing spaces was a really great way to get on the ground floor with helping businesses overcome what they were going through.
1: For Culture at a Crossroads, I'm David Mann. Thanks for joining us today. And we do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you
0: in following Jesus.